Badger fans, and welcome to another edition of Bucky's Fifth Podcast. On today's show, we're first going to talk about the big news that came out yesterday. If you haven't heard, college football is essentially heading in the right direction in terms of COVID-19, coronavirus. Uh, the NCAA is going to be allowing voluntarily on-campus activities for men's, women's men's and women's basketball, as well, of course, college football. So we'll get into that, what it means. Uh, and everything like that. And in the back half of the show, we've kind of just got a little bit of a cleanup for you guys as you head into this Memorial Day weekend. Um, we, we've got some articles that we'd like to go over, talk about. We've got some uh, questions from the mailbag that were that came a little later than the episodes. So we're going to get into that. Um, and just kind of go through some uh, player profiles. So a nice little uh, mixed bag of Badger talk to send you guys into the weekend as maybe you. Uh, make your drive for your Memorial Day plans. Matt, how are you doing this morning? Doing fantastic. Uh, we're recording a little earlier than normal, which is kind of nice. Uh, just kind of a fresh feeling in, in the morning after a shower and get to talk some sports. How about you? Yeah, it's, it is nice. We've we've done, I think, maybe one morning episode, a nice little cup of coffee and uh, a chat, and then uh, get it uploaded and get on with uh, the week and the weekend, and hopefully the, uh, the weather opens up a little bit. It's not super nice here right now. Um, it's a little cloudy, but hopefully the weekend uh, is a little bit better. And on you know, the same positive vibe as Memorial Day weekend, it sounds like there's some positive vibes heading for college football. Uh, we'll get right into that. First question, is college football back? Um, I mean, the NCAA is allowing on-campus activities, like we mentioned, starting June 1st, uh, which is a, a big step in the right direction. Had, you know, Based on, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we had no idea if this was coming. We had no idea when sports would be back. All of a sudden, we're starting to see plans and proposals from not only NCAA, but uh, from uh, from the National Basketball Association, from Major League Baseball, trying to figure out a plan. Uh, so what do you make of uh, this new announcement? You know, I think you're right that it's a, definitely a positive step and that it's moving towards, um, you know, what really what fans want, what players want. Um, you know, I, there's also been some, some talk within um, uh, high school athletics and starting to get some of that back. You know, I mean, it, it looks like Wisconsin is, is uh, amongst the many teams wanting to, to get back to some sense of normalcy. You know, I know that UW uh, athletics can, can kind of do their own thing because they're tied to the state. They don't necessarily have to follow exactly what the Forward Dane um, local initiative is. Um, so it'll it'll be interesting to see kind of how it unfolds. I think there's so many layers to it, and there's still a lot of what ifs. There's still a lot to be parsed through to figure out how everything would work. If there would be mandatory testing each day, you've got players coming from all over the country to to back to campus. So kind of keeping everything. So there's a lot to still figure out, but. The fact that there is a kind of some semblance of a light at the end of the tunnel is definitely positive, and I think we're seeing some positive movement across the country, at least across the sports landscape. Yeah, I, I like that you you mentioned a few of those points, and I think the biggest one 
is the the what ifs because there's so many what ifs what ifs in all of sports right now. I mean, you think about Major League Baseball, they're trying to figure out a plan to essentially change their their whole way of of playing the game. Uh, you know, in city by city, they're trying to come up with a different plan for that. The, the NBA has been kicking around every team coming to one neutral site like Orlando or Las Vegas, but in college football, I, I think the concern is that. Like you mentioned, there's players coming from all over traveling to, you know, if if you're from California and you play, you know, in the ACC, you're you're traveling across the country, and there's nothing you can do in terms of, you know, a central hub. There's too many college football teams and programs and players to do something like that. So really, it's going to have to be players playing in their stadiums and, and getting back to their campus and practicing. That's the only way to do it. So how they work through that in terms of testing, in terms of making sure everybody's safe, and including the coaching staff, the officials, everything like that is, is going to be really interesting. But at least right now, given the recent announcement, it at least sounds like they're working on that. They want kids back on campus voluntarily to, to start working out, to start getting in playing shape, which essentially means if they weren't planning on playing this fall, I don't think they would be having – uh, kids, you know, jump back without knowing exactly what's going to happen. So it's definitely a a positive step towards what we're all hoping for, which is regular college football starting on time this fall. Yeah, and I mean it's it's very nuanced, so there's a lot to still you know figure out within it. I mean we've got things like the recruiting calendar as well that are kind of thrown in a loop with this. I know as of right now, there's no uh, in-face recruiting until the 30th of June. They're re-looking at that next week, Wednesday, to see if maybe it can start after that, like a July 1st start date. Um, you know, I think a lot of the different pieces are starting to move towards, um, you know, there's different places across the country that are in different spots. Uh, and because of that, I think there's going to have to be more of a broader look at it. You know, I know um, Ohio State has already said, yep, uh, players are going to be able to come back here relatively soon. I think it was mid, mid-June mid um, they or to early June. I, I think Wisconsin, will we'll see kind of how it unfolds. There hasn't been a direct statement about that yet uh, on the Wisconsin end. But I think no matter what, it's definitely all positive in that aspect. Um, there's still a lot that needs to be figured out, though. And, you know, n- neither of us are infectious disease experts, so we're not going to sit here and pound the table about what should be done, but instead leave that to the experts and the people who need to make these decisions on behalf of a lot of young men who want to play, a lot of um, young women who also want to play on the women's basketball side here who uh, are also able to come back. So it's going to be fascinating to watch, and you know, in the end, we're all hoping for some semblance of normalcy here as, as soon as possible. Yeah, it's it's a tough job for, for anyone to try and figure out, whether it be the NCA or school by school. I mean, we've heard, I think the buzzword of coronavirus has been unprecedented. You know, we haven't had anything quite like this. You know, we've had pandemics and diseases before that have came out, and but they've never, you know, caused a national shutdown to sports and, and the world alike. So trying to figure out a way back, there's no blueprint um, for doing that, but I think it's definitely a step in the positive direction, uh, like like we've kind of already said. Is there anything else that you can kind of take from it other than it's essentially a good start on, on what we're looking for? Yeah, I think I think that's the, the gist of it. But I, I also think it's it's interesting that, you know, 
last week, um, you know, prior to this week of positive news coming forth, uh, last week there was the whole California state schools. You know, you got San Jose State, Fresno State, uh, schools like that uh, who were saying, hey, next next year we're going to be online learning. But um, since that release, it's also come out that that doesn't mean that kids can't be on campus living. That doesn't mean kids can't be um, participating in sports. They didn't say that. Uh, so I, I think a lot of people looked at that and thought doom and gloom right away that it was like, okay, well, that knocks out, uh, you know, almost an entire conference or a wave of schools on the West Coast. But I think it, it still gives a glimmer of hope because, yes, things might be online at many universities. I mean, you've got Harvard's going out and saying that they're going to be probably uh, most primarily online as well. But that doesn't mean that they still can't participate in athletics. They're just, the kids will be on campus still. Uh, it's just they won't actually be going to huge lecture halls and doing classes that way. It might be more blended uh, in, than um, kind of a normal class format. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, it's going to be something where we jump back to essentially a, a new normal. You're not going to jump into something that you're you're used to by any means, um, but it's def- definitely something that we can take and, and see as something in the right, the right direction. Uh, in terms of the California stuff, it is interesting how that's going to play out as well. You know, West Coast um, conferences like that, uh, the Mountain West and, and the Pac-12 are kind of uh, in a different situation, it seems like, than, than the Big Ten and the ACC and conferences like that. So how that all plays out is going to be, as a, a college football fan who we've never seen anything like this, we hope that all, you know, how many teams, all 120 FBS and, of course, all the FCS schools are, are playing football uh, in early September. But if something like that doesn't happen where some team is, is holding back or a college is changing and not allowing stuff, it's going to be interesting to watch uh, because there are some, you know, what you think about early in the season, there's some big games out on the West Coast that are supposed to be scheduled. If for some reason a team can't participate in that, all of a sudden you're tinkering uh, your, your preseason, your, your early season schedule. So this whole thing, while, of course, it is, is tragic and, and none of us wish for this pandemic to shut everything down, it is going to be an interesting storyline to watch how it all kind of plays out. Yeah, I mean, and then you you also kind of saw Ohio State officials coming out and playing around with the idea of of projecting that fans can come to games while maintaining kind of social distancing, essentially something like twenty to 30,000 fans instead of the normal, you know, 80 to 100,000 fans. Do you think that that's something that really can be maintained or um, be kind of a blueprint for how this might go? I was wondering, you know, when this kind of all started, and of course everyone was just wishing that everyone was healthy and safe and things like that, but I was wondering when sports came back, how they would take an approach to, you know, of course it's great that the sport is going to be back in some sort of capacity, maybe there's going to be no fans or anything like that, but the the real question now kind of turns to, I don't think anyone's doubting that sports are going to be back in some capacity without fans, the real question turns to now, well, when can we have fans and how do we do that? How does how do you make these decisions? And I think the projections like Ohio State kind of released uh, is interesting. Uh, I wondered if you could maybe find a plan to put people you know six feet apart and, and try and make it work. I think it would be a lot to try and do when you think about at a football game. You know, at Camp Randall, you're packed in there pretty tightly. I mean, some people have the season. You've got the season tickets maybe, uh, and you've got the pads, so you get your three foot. You know, area, and you maybe you're with your family and friends next to you, 
and maybe you can sit tight together in that if it's in your social circle. Uh, but you think about in Camp Randall, you got 10 people in front of you, 20, 10 people behind you, all high five and touching, doing all the same stuff. So I, I'm, I'm confused on how that will work um, because that's a lot of you know manpower to try and enforce something to keep people apart. But at the end of the day, if you can come up with a plan to get some sort of people in there, some sort of revenue from food, drink, tickets, you know, I don't know how you would divide it up. If you know, if you're a season ticket holder, how do you how do you plan if you're getting tickets versus somebody else? So it's going to be interesting. But I think again, it's another step that you know they're trying to figure out a way to get at least some sort of people in the stands versus uh, you know playing in front of nobody because. I'd have to think in terms of sporting events, college football is going to be a really difficult one to play without fans. Yeah, I think I think one you know positive light is that uh, most college football stadiums are going to be open air, which uh, we know kind of according to most things coming out is is you're a little less likely to um, contract it from uh, when you're in outside. Um, we also know though that you go into the concourse area and it's a little bit more confined. Um, so it, I think that's the, the fascinating piece is there's so many different variables at play that people um, in high power positions are going to have to figure out. Um, and they're kind of looking at it, trying to figure out what's not only best for the student athlete, but also fans, um, while also thinking about the health and lawsuits and whatnot. So it's just, it, it's just fascinating. That's really the, the main thing here is that there's so many different things to dig into that it, it's, it's really going to be something that's going to have to be well thought out and you got to have a really good plan. But um, I, I think one positive thing yeah. is that if there's a few less fans, there's a little extra spot there uh, next to you. So you're not sitting right on top of somebody, you know, most people buy the cushions at Camp Randall so that you can make sure that you get your, one foot of space. So, um, you know, it's, it's just, there's, there's just a lot of what is right now. And it's, it's a matter of what's going to happen. Um, and really we don't know at this point. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I don't envy anyone who's trying to make those decisions. Uh, but at the same time, you know, if you're getting kids on campus, getting them working out, getting them in playing shape, that's the nice part is that when you come up with that plan, these guys are going to be ready to go. They're going to be they're going to be in on campus. They've they've been getting ready to play for whatever plan they come up with and whatever they can do. You know, you don't have to have those weeks of catch up where, uh, you know, in starting in college football they were worried about. Well, if you don't have a preseason, you didn't have spring football, you didn't have training uh, and conditioning. That's going to be a problem in terms of injuries. If you got guys getting ready to go, maybe that gets you. So when when the NCAA and athletic directors and health officials come up with a plan, you know, these guys are ready to go. So. I wanted to ask you, what do you think is, you know, the percent chance that you and I are, are sitting in Camp Randall on September 4th in our normal uh, season ticket seats? That's hard. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I don't – there's so many different pieces that are up in the air right now that it's hard mm-hmm. to put a, a number above 50% in my eyes. Uh, you know, I, I think even the most optimistic fan is understanding that there is – so much at play here. So I would say like it's at, you know, a one third. So about 33%. Um, you know, I, I think we don't know, like there's just, I, I would rather err on the side of caution in terms of throwing out a prediction prediction here than to go ahead and say, Oh yeah, we'll definitely be there. So I'll say 33%, but really 
I think it could run the gamut, and I think it's just based off of who you talk to. So, like I said, I'm no infectious disease expert, so, <laughs> um, but I'll just I'll throw out there 33% for the yeah. make of some. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I had I wrote down thirty five to forty percent chance and I think that's you know especially the for the first game of the season, I don't know if how they're gonna make that work. I don't know. You know, I would say later on uh, in the season maybe you're better off if they can come up with a plan to get started. But I think at the, you know, those first few weeks everyone's going to be a little cautious and, and try to come up with a, a plan that, that works for the first few weeks and then that. So I'm not banking on it. Uh I don't know if they'd somehow uh, if they didn't have fans allow media uh, to get in there, then maybe we'd be in in that capacity. But uh, as it sits right now, I'm not super optimistic. But if they're playing football at the end of the day, I think uh, that's something that, given the last two months of no sports, everyone would take and, and be happy with. So I'm I'm kind of in the same ballpark. I said 35 to 40, and I think even that uh, to start is, is pretty, pretty high. Uh, anything else you want to cover news-wise? Uh, no, let's hit some of the other articles and stuff we wanted to talk about. All right, guys, we're going to go ahead and get our ads out of the way, and then we'll get into uh, some article stuff. We've got some uh, some coaching rankings, um, some player profiles, things like that. So we'll get into that after a couple quick ad reads. All right, guys, we've got a mixed bag of Badger stuff to cover on this Thursday morning. Uh, we've got some football talk. We've got a follow-up question and some basketball stuff. And then we'll get into some of our returning player profiles that we've done a little bit already on the podcast and on the website throughout. And firstly, CBS released a a rankings from their college football writers uh, that ranked the top 25 coaches in college football. Um, Paul Chris came in at 17th. I was furious when I saw it. I, I have some takes, and I think, you know, I read part of your article that, that you put out on about it last night, and you kind of sounded in the same boat, but what do you make of, of Paul Chris being ranked 17th, too high, too low, or, or kind of what you were thinking? Well, first off, I'll just say, like, when I wrote the article, I had I had uh, had known it was coming. It, it had been in the works from CBS, so I was like, hey, Drew, I'm going to do a pre-write. So I had pre-written a bunch of the stuff kind of anticipating that Chris would be kind of in this in this range uh, just based off of the sheer fact that he generally has been in this range whenever they've kind of pumped these out. Uh, you know, he was, he was, he's been anywhere between like 23 and, and 19 usually, uh, throughout this. Um, and so I didn't want to put too much of my thoughts in the actual article because I figured we would touch on it here in the podcast. Um, you know, according to our poll, 83% thought that he should be higher. 15% said about right and 2% thought lower um, with with about that 2% representing seven votes. So I, I, I'll touch on this second. What were your thoughts? Because I know you have some strong feelings about this. I I thought it was absolutely absurd and, and laughable. I And I like the CBS crew. I, you know, Tom Fernelli, those guys I always think are good. Uh, I think you and I both maybe listen to that podcast that they do, and they do a great job. So I know it was a culmination of all their writers, but for me to see, to start, I mean, you go through, you've got Kirk Ferentz and P.J. Fleck both directly ahead of Paul Chris, which to me was was the, the ruling that threw this list out for me in general. I, I can't see in any world, way, shape, or form uh, that Kirk Ferentz and P.J. Fleck are better coaches than, than Paul Chris. You know, Paul Chris is four and one against Kirk Ferentz and three and three and one against PJ Flex. So for me, 
know, and that includes his, his win in the Cotton Bowl uh, over Western Michigan. So for me, I, I don't see any argument uh, that you could have those two in front of them. Um, and But then you get, I, I think that one in terms of Badger fans, we would all agree, you know, Kirk Ferentz, sure, he's a perfectly fine seven and six, you know, every season eight and five, seven and six college football coach, but Paul Chris has, has proven that he's better than that. Uh, but then you get into like the likes of, I think the list was Mike Gundy uh, and then Jim Harbaugh in front of him. I know personality-wise, Mike Gundy and Jim Harbaugh are going to catch the uh, uh, the win in that one. I know Paul Chris isn't very outspoken. But you look at Mike Gundy's career winning percentage uh, of 668 and Paul Chris 670, they're about even. But if you look at the you know his time at just Wisconsin, you know, Paul Chris's winning percentage is 765. So quite a bit better than Mike Gundy's career uh, at Oklahoma State. And of course, you know Mike Gundy's been there much longer, so that's that's something to take in consideration. But for me, I don't buy that uh, Mike Gundy is a better coach than Paul Chris. And then you get into uh, Jim Harbaugh, kind of similar win percentage, but hasn't beat his rivals. I know it's Ohio State. Wisconsin hasn't beat them either. But Wisconsin's beat some other teams in the rankings. Michigan has struggled at that. So I know he's a big personality, and he's got a big name and a big pull at Michigan, but I still don't buy that. And then, of course, you get to James Franklin, which I think this is more of a personal begrudgment. I can't stand James Franklin. I think he's a very overrated coach. I think he talks a lot. I think he talks a big game. I know Wisconsin hasn't had that great success against Penn State, but I just don't buy into uh, him. But maybe he's a better coach than I'm letting on. So I personally think 10 to 12 is where I have Paul Christ, and I'd give him I'd, – I'd allow 12, but I think I think Paul Christ, and I know I'm biased, is a top 10 coach in, in college football. Yeah, I, I think he's got to be in the top 15 personally. I, I know – Whenever looking at these rankings, that there is just hyper, you know, correction going on because you see some huge swings in this. For example, in 2018, Scott Frost was number 21. He wasn't even in the top 40 uh, this time. So it, it's one of those things where Scott Frost hadn't hadn't been a coach at Nebraska for a year and was number 21. So you got to take some of this with a grain of salt. But at the same time, I think what's what's wildly crazy is you look back at the rankings from 2018 so I, I'm going two years back all right so um, even even you can look at it from last year's rankings as well in 2018 Iowa and Kirk Ferentz was 23 on here in this rankings okay he made a considerable jump while doing a whole heap of nothing we look at <laughs> we look at uh, Jim Harbaugh he was at 18 okay Paul Christ was 19 in 2019, okay? Well, in that time, Jim Harbaugh, once again, has not lived up to expectations for Michigan. Paul Christ has met expectations for Wisconsin. You get to a Rose Bowl, you win, a, you know, you win uh, another bowl. It's, it's one of those things where it's, it's fascinating to see the rise that Jim Harbaugh can have after, you know, having mediocre seasons for what Michigan really wants. You know, I, I understand that Michigan is was in that 9-10 window each year, but at the same time, Wisconsin was as well. So I don't understand the huge discrepancy now between the two of them. What dramatically changed during that window of time that would have lent itself to that? I understand James Franklin. There's a love affair there because of his recruiting acumen. He's, mm-hmm. he's a great recruiter. He's, you know, 
to be fair, crap at X's and O's. We can, we've seen it in big games. He pees down his leg um, in the final moments, but whatever. Um, I think the bigger thing for me was the Minnesota with P.J. Fleck. P.J. Fleck has, uh, no matter how I feel about him personally, which, which isn't you know great, um, I think as a football coach, he brings something to the table. I think there's there's no way people can discredit that he brings you know passion. He's able to do a better job at recruiting at Minnesota these past few years. That's great. All right, that doesn't necessarily mean that he needs to be ranked you know top 15 here. We're looking at a coach who you know he barely has over a 500 record as a coach uh, across his two stops. Granted, Western Michigan not necessarily a great place to win, and he did it. All right. For one year, we look at uh, Minnesota. It's not like Minnesota has been a heaping dumpster fire prior to him. Tracy Clay's had this team winning nine games in 2016, right before he took over, and then they lost. They won five games and seven games before they won 11 last year. It's not like he's been going crazy and doing things that are so unprecedented at Minnesota. Glenn Mason had the the Gophers winning 10 games back in the day. Um, running Lawrence Ramon, uh, Maroney and the guys. So it's, it's, I know that that's a long time ago and there's been some, some crazy stuff that's happened, uh, in Minnesota and PJ Fleck is, deserves credit. I'm not saying he doesn't deserve credit, but you look at their schedule last year and the quote unquote gamut they had to run through to, to get to those 11 wins and it's, it's not there. Like, yes, they beat Penn State. And they beat Auburn in their bowl game, which is which is a great win. But you look at the rest of their schedule, the only other two teams they played of consequence, they lost to. Iowa at Iowa and Wisconsin. And Wisconsin didn't just beat them. They beat them handily. Now, I know he beat Wisconsin the year prior in which Wisconsin had just a whole host of off-the-field stuff going on. But you look at that schedule from Minnesota last year, they eked out wins against South Dakota State, an an FCS program. They had to barely hold on to beat Fresno State, and they had to barely hold on to beat Georgia Southern. Well, Fresno State last year was 4-8. You look at their away games that they played last year, Fresno State 4-8, Purdue 4-8, Rutgers 2-10, Northwestern 3-9. Who did they play in that cupcake schedule that at all? So I look at 11 wins, and that is great. It is phenomenal for Minnesota by their standards. But at the same time, it is an absolute slap in the face to Paul Chris to put P.J. Fleck ahead of him as things currently stand. In a few years, if P.J. Fleck continues to win 10-11 games, is doing some phenomenal things at Minnesota going forward, by all means do it. But at the same time, time when the head-to-head record between the two is completely tilted to Paul Christ and um, and Paul Christ continues to win games, I, I just I don't see it, especially when you look at, yes, there's been positive outcomes at Wisconsin, you know, for a while now. It's not, it's, it's it, whether it be Brett Bielema after uh, Barry Alvarez or um, Gary Anderson, there's definitely been success, but I look at it as there's there has been a higher level of success under Paul Christ than either under Bielema or under um, Anderson. Bielema, I mean, you look at it, what 
big bowl games did he really win in, in the end because they took advantage of some, some weaker competition at times because Ohio State wasn't Ohio State at a good chunk of the time that he was there and and wasn't able to kind of win the big one. Now, Paul Christ, was he able to win the big one uh, in the Rose Bowl this past year? Nope. Has he been able to exercise the demon of Ohio State? Nope. But at the same time, you look at Orange Bowl, that's one of the premier bowls going out and winning that. That's that's big time. Having a chance at an undefeated season, that's big time. So I, I look at it as there's a lot of different reasons that Paul Chris should be higher on this list. Do I think that he needs to be in the top five or top eight? Or I don't even know, necessarily know if he's top ten. But I do think he should be within the top 15. Yeah, yeah, I totally hear you. I, and I love the point that you made of, you know, what have some of these guys done in you know in last season to jump them up so high? I mean, Kirk Ferentz, like you mentioned, went up eight spots. P.J. Flock went up 29 spots. And, yes, they did have a good year. And the schedule, like you mentioned, it wasn't great. And, and sure, uh, to me, P.J. Flack is a great value version of, of James Franklin. So, <laughs> I mean, there's I get why some of these guys are ahead of him. When you look at the rest of the, the top ten, Kyle Whittingham at Utah I think is, is one of the best coaches in college football. A, a quiet guy, doesn't get a lot of recognition, but is excellent. Dan Mullen's a great coach. Jimbo Fisher, big name. He's won a national title. It's hard to get ahead of a guy that's won a national title. Kirby Smart probably should have won a national title by now. Uh, Brian Kelly, much like Paul Christ, has, has kind of had a program that uh, has been pretty consistent. He's won everywhere he's went. Coach O, one of the best seasons ever. Last season, can't fault that. And then you've got the big boys of, of Lincoln Riley, uh, Dabo Sweeney, and, and Nick Saban. Nobody's going to argue between those three uh, in terms of that. So there, I can definitely see why some of these guys are uh, are ahead of him, and, and rightfully so. But the, the Kirk Ferentz and the P.J. Fleck ones, in my eyes, like you mentioned, is, is kind of a slap in the face. And I would say maybe you chalk that up because it is big personalities, and, and P.J. Fleck is a motivator. He's got his sayings and things like that. But you, if you're talking personality, I would say even Paul Chris has more personality and flair and fire than Kirk Ferentz. I've never seen Kirk Ferentz crack a smile. So for me, I, I just can't uh, I can't get over those two, and, and that really just uh, is a tribute to Paul Chris kind of being an underrated coach, but at the same time, you know, he's – He's going to look at this list and probably chuckle and say, I, I don't care about uh, CBS coaching rankings. So it's more something for you and I and the fans to get upset at. But, man, when I saw that, I was I was pretty uh, upset. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just – it's a slight to Paul Christ. It's a slight to Crewnex. I mean, it's one of those things <laughs> where Paul Christ is horribly underrated. Do I – but like I said, I'm not sitting here pounding the table that he needs to be in the top ten even. But I, I don't buy – P.J. Fleck at this juncture being rated above him uh, in terms of a value add. I, I think if you switched who they are at their different programs and P.J. Fleck would be run out of town from Wisconsin very quickly. And I, I think I see him and I think Gary Anderson, it, at least in terms of that. Wisconsin has a tremendous fit with Paul Christ, and just because it's a great fit doesn't mean that he's any less of a coach. Most definitely. All right, let's hop into, we've got one little thing to cover in college basketball, and uh, this was a follow-up to our mailbag. Um, we talked a little bit about the likes of the freshman class coming in, contributing, um, and, and which guys would kind of be in the rotation. And then as a follow-up, Tacticus sure says a lot, uh, asked how much we expect these freshmen to not only play, 
uh, but contribute to the men's basketball team this fall? And I thought it was an interesting question because in terms of minutes, you know, I, I think I, I think you could see some guys play a, a decent amount, maybe be a sixth, seventh man in some ways. But how, what do you think in terms of contribution and, and minutes from some of those guys? So I kind of talked a little bit about that back in March, kind of right after the basketball season uh, with the 2020-2021 preview, talking about the potential rotation a little bit. But I honestly, I I still think Jonathan Davis and Ben Carlson are almost locked to to not redshirt and to play just because of the sheer fact that you need to um, widen out some of the scholarship numbers so that it's not completely – tilted and so that you don't have just a whole heap of freshmen all together because otherwise what they would basically have is because they have such huge classes with Davis, Carlson, Bowman, um, Crowell, and um, and Jordan Davis all coming in, if they were to all redshirt and then you bring in this other huge group of, of four or so guys coming in, you basically have nine freshmen. That's, that's just no way to fill out a roster. So they're going to need to play at least two. I would expect three. I'm guessing Bowman will also play. I think those are probably the three most talented and and most ready-to-play guys on there. Um, And and I think they're set up to get some minutes. I think Carlson's going to have a little harder time uh, to to get actual minutes and to make a huge dent. I think if you're looking back at the um, actual minutes played, last year Tyler Wall played in 15 minutes. I, I don't think Carlson's going to get quite that many minutes. I would expect him to be closer to 10, um, anywhere between like 8 and 12 maybe uh, minutes a game. But he'll definitely see the court. I think it's going to be tougher as well for him because Potter is going to see more minutes. you got Ford was already doing 25 minutes a game, and Reaver's already playing 26. So I think it's going to be a little harder for him to get in there and really break through with, with a huge year or really um, be consequential in a lot of ways. But I, I think if you look at Tyler Wall last year was able to go in and average two and a half points, I, I could see uh, Carlson averaging, you know, three, four points a game, um, potentially just because of what he brings to the table. Um, but then I think the guy who's going to probably play the most is Johnny Davis. You look at how many minutes Brevin Pritzel played last year. Uh, you take away Kobe King from the roster, and he was third on the team in minutes at 26, nearly 27 minutes a game. Um, you know, I, I think Johnny Davis, while I don't think he's going to be playing 26 minutes a game, I, I do anticipate him playing more than probably uh, 18. Like Potter played 18 last year. I could see somewhere around there. I could see 20 uh, potentially as well because there's just not a lot of guard depth behind Trice, behind Davison to, to really lean on. You know, Trevor Anderson uh, is, a, is a great role role uh, backup point guard. I, I, he's not the guy you want as your backup at shooting guard, though. He doesn't have the, the wheels to keep up with some of the quicker guards that you're going to see at the two position. Um, so I, I think, you know, just because of that knee injury, I should clarify that. But I, I think he's a kid who's going to play similar to minutes to we did last year at like 12, you know, 15 minutes a, a game. So I anticipate Johnny Davis to take on a bigger workload, play closer to 20 minutes a game. Um, that still leaves room for Tyler Wall to earn a few extra minutes um, to pull off of Pritzel. I think it, it also offers a couple extra minutes for Trevor Anderson. Um, so And a, a couple minutes here or there for Warren Bowman. So I, I think that's kind of what you can anticipate. I think Johnny Davis isn't going to light up the scoreboard most likely as a freshman. He won't be t- 
uh, asked to, but he will be out there and he will be playing, uh, you know, hard-nosed defense because that is really his specialty. And, you know, I could see him averaging, you know, four or five points a game as well to, to boot. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head with, with that. Uh, I would have to expect, um, you know, I think Davis is going to be a guy, you, you mentioned just the sheer, you know, addition, subtraction, you look at, you lose Revan Pritzel, it's really all you lose off the roster. Someone with that same skill set and position is going to have to step in and take those minutes. So I think if you if you got 18 to 20 minutes out of him, maybe maybe you're closer to 20 because he can kind of fill some of the minutes that Kobe King got early in the season um, in that 2-3 position. Um, so I, I would see anything like that. And hopefully he, uh, he can you know average a, a, a small number of points. I don't expect him to come out and, and be leading the team in scoring by any means or anything like that, but certainly a rotation guy that's going to uh, play a, a good amount. He, he's going to put in some buckets. He's going to be a not a role player. He's going to be you know solidly in the rotation, but after that, uh, it's it's going to be a question mark. And then you've got Carlson. You're going to need a guy that comes in and uh, plays you know minutes wise. I don't know if there's a certain number you can put on it because you don't know the rotation between Potter. Um, and Reavers, but you're going to need somebody that's going to be able to give one of those guys a blow at a time. So I, I see him contributing. Uh, probably doesn't light up the scoreboard, but he's going to be a, a big body that's going to come in um, and, and play part of the rotation. So I can certainly see both of those guys uh, being in there and, and contributing a good amount. Uh, who knows? And Like I said, they're, neither of them are going to lead the team in scoring or, or light the stat sheet on fire, but they're going to be solidly in the rotation. I think they're ready to be. You know, you look at their their highlight tapes, their maturity. They're they're ready to play college basketball. So I'm excited to see what you might get out of uh, Davis and uh, and Carlson that way. And then you know maybe you work Bowman in from there. I think you're probably right that he's going to see some minutes, but uh, I would have to expect the first two to to really be contributors in that. Um, we, we talked a little bit about uh, underdog week earlier this week. Um, we we kind of got into our favorite underdogs because it is underdog week at SB Nation. And our, our final question of the day, we're going to save our returner profiles because we did come up with this question uh, mid-episode and we kind of forgot to uh, put it on, this, on the, uh, the outline for you guys. But we wanted to touch on this as we wrap up underdog week and head you guys into the weekend. Um, who do you think are, you know, we're pivoting back to college football. Of course, Wisconsin's had a lot of uh, underdogs. Who do you think are, you know, some walk-ons that could be big contributors next season or, or maybe not next season, maybe into the future um, that are on the, the roster right now? You know, I, I think it, it starts with a couple guys um, on, on uh, the line. You know, Henningsen, he was a walk-on. He's now on scholarship. And Josh Seltzner. They're both guys that are on scholarship now, so I'm not going to lump them in as as players that are we're going to talk about kind of in here. But I think Mike Maskalunas is a kid who will continue to to earn time. He he could very well be the starter, uh, depending upon how it shakes up between him and Leo Chanel, who's out bench pressing everyone. Um, we got uh, Jack Dunn and, and Krumholtz as well. They're, they're guys who I, I think will will be called upon in a greater fashion. Now, I don't anticipate them being the leading uh, pass catchers unless something drastically happens to Danny Davis, Kendrick Pryor, or um, Jake Ferguson, but there are other guys to, that I think will help. But then, you know, looking towards the future, I think there's there's some guys who can definitely help. that, And they're at positions that we've seen walk-ons really succeed at Wisconsin as well. You know, 
linebacker, safety, tight end, um, offensive line, um, and 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 uh, wide receiver have all been places that you've seen walk-ons kind of flourish at Wisconsin. You know, you know, outside of there's other ones as well, but but I, I would say safety has been one that's been really just phenomenal. And and John Torchio is the guy I think is is going to be playing later on in his career. Um, you know, he played a little bit last year right away, and and he was a guy that Mike Mascalunas brought up as. He's the next wave of uh, a walk-on to look out for. When I had talked to him uh, back in in fall camp and interviewed him about, uh, or I guess after the USF game where he had that just conglomerate hit that he dropped on that punter, um, and he said John Torchio, you know, he's he's a guy he's six one two hundred five, so he brings good size for the safety position, but then he also um, you know turned down offers at in-state Cal to, to go ahead and walk on at Wisconsin. So I think he's a kid to watch, especially when you look at the Badgers haven't been throwing around huge amounts of offers at safety. I think part of that is they feel really comfortable about what Torcio brings to the table, you know, Titus Toller, what he brings to the table as a couple of young guys in, in the pipeline. So I, I think that's really um, a guy to start with. I've got a couple more, but who, who else jumps out to you? Yeah, I mean, those are, uh, you know, Mike Vasculunas is, of course, a name that we've talked about a little bit already in, in terms of names. Uh, John Torchio was kind of a guy that I, I forgot about, and I kind of forgot about his recruitment that he was, uh, you know, he did have some some bigger opportunities to play elsewhere. Uh, came to Wisconsin, which I think if if you're a guy that has that pedigree that you can you can turn down that comfortability of, of playing elsewhere and having that, um, you know, of course, that scholarship and that financial backing to essentially, you know, play a risk and, and go to a school that, that you kind of want and, and are looking for. I think that mentality really you know, serves you that you're going to get in there and work and, and make a contribu- contribution on the field and really get after it because you got that something to prove. So uh, the, the, he is a guy that you could definitely see kind of in that role. Um, in terms of other names, I'd, I'd have to think on it a little bit further. I'm not sure if I have any um, quite written down. Who do you have down as your uh, other guys? Uh, you know, I talked about Torchu on the defense. On on offense, I think there's a couple guys the, um, that could help out the Badgers in the future. I think Cam Phillips is the kid, you know, another guy who um, had opportunities elsewhere, scholarship opportunities that chose to walk out at Wisconsin. Uh, his his recruitment was, was kind of crazy because he transferred from um, Ohio and went down to IMG Blew out his knee in practice. You know, he was holding a whole host of, you know, 20-plus offers from across the country. Um, those offers kind of whittled down after um, he injured his knee. So Wisconsin kind of took a chance at him. He was a kid they were all after right away as after his, like, sophomore, junior year. So um, I, I think he's a kid, you know, talent just doesn't go away. I know knee injuries can be devastating, especially for uh, skilled players who, who need to run, need to cut, do some of those things. but you know, just modern medicine makes it so that you never know with, with some of these guys. Uh, if he comes in and and surprises, and, and I don't necessarily think he's going to be, you know, a top guy next year, but in the future, I, I wouldn't be surprised just based off of, you know, the skill set he had in high school and what he could bring to the table. Um, a couple other guys at tight end, you know, it's, at this point it's kind of a mixed bag. We're not sure – who's going to be the people that are going to step up next to Ferguson or, or behind him. Um, and I think Gabe Lloyd and Jack Eschenbach are both guys that could easily 
um, you know, take on a bigger role. I think Eschenbach, the big thing for him is just getting um, bigger and stronger. You know, he only weighed like 220-some pounds last year. Uh, 6'6", I mean, he runs like a deer, has great hands, but it's just a matter of putting on some of that weight. Um, so I think he's a kid to, to look out for, especially because we don't know what uh, necessarily um, the Badgers have in a guy like Clay Cundiff or a guy like Hayden Rucci. You know, Cam Large, Cole Dakovich are also coming on campus, so they'll um, help elevate that room as well. But, you know, Gabe Lloyd was a guy that the staff's always been high on in, out of Green Bay, uh, you know, a, a walk-on kid who missed all of last year because of a, a leg injury. But he, he's, you know, he's got the size at 6'4", 230, 240, that he, he could definitely help them out if he comes back uh, healthy, especially considering that they've moved Cormac Sampson back to the O-line. At least uh, when the spring um, roster came out, he was back at the offensive line. So I, I think, you know, Gabe Lloyd's a guy to look out for, Jack Eschenbach, another guy that you never know. It's, it's just Wisconsin's shown that they're willing to play the best player to, to get out there, and if those guys are the best players, they'll st- they'll play them over um, a couple of scholarship um, younger guys that are in the program. So it'll, it, I'm fascinated to see kind of what happens at the tight end position because I think it's, you know, kind of overlooked because Wisconsin has Jake Ferguson, but that second tight end is so important. Oh, yeah, it's a vital position, especially at Wisconsin, who sometimes will, will put, you know, two to even three tight ends on the field at a time. So... I like that you mentioned Jack Eschenbach. It seems like I, I think uh, it's been a while since we've talked about him, but he's he's kind of a podcast favorite if you guys haven't. You know, If you've been a longtime listener of us, I think both Matt and I are both kind of high on Jack Eschenbach and the potential that he brings. Uh, I, we know, uh, of course, he kind of was kind of was a string bean and, and, like we said, needed to put on the weight uh, coming into this fall. But if he does that, he's got the size and the athleticism and the speed to be uh, – a guy that kind of comes out of the woodworks and uh, uh, makes an impression. So uh, make sure to pay attention to that name. It's a name that uh, we've talked about probably more than most podcasts uh, have because Jack Eschenbach <laughs> seems to work his way into the rotation, but I think it's just because we're excited to see uh, the future that he brings. All right, guys, I think that just about wraps up another episode of Bucky's Fifth Podcast. As always, we thank you guys for listening. Uh, Everyone have a safe and enjoyable Memorial Day weekend. I hope the weather uh, improves for everybody, uh, no matter what you're headed and where your plans are. And as always, on Wisconsin.